Germany's beleaguered defense minister has temporarily dropped his PhD Hi, it's Michelle. Hey, this is Ted. Welcome back to Spaßbremse. We've got a great episode for you today with one of our favorite guests, Giulio Mattioli, sustainable transport researcher at the University of Dortmund. You all know him. You love him. He's been on the pod. Three-time returning champion. Yeah. And since there have been just a slew of transport-related things uh, appearing in the German news, it's the hot discourse of... The century, I guess. The, 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 the Verkehr is not, is not Wenden. <laughs> yeah, we wanted to get Julio on to update us on all of that. So before we cut to the interview, I think we do need to highlight the biggest and possibly most hilarious thing ever to come out of the Deutsche Bahn headquarters. Uh, this is their program of Deutschland Takt, which was just announced uh, that... Is gonna, <laughs> sorry, it's, they just announced that they're delaying it by 40 years. So yeah, that's that's 40, 40. We're saying that correctly. It was supposed to take effect in 2030, which, you know, sounds like it's far I off. Wait, I can wait that long. Yeah, it's long term, but you're going to get there eventually. And of course, the idea was of Deutschland Takt is to kind of coordinate the schedules in a different way so that all the trains arrive in a punctual manner, kind of the way, uh, similar to the way the Swiss network is organized. And um, yeah, 40 years brings us to 2070. And they announced this as as if it was... Uh, Just like a casual thing when they're like, oh, your train will be uh, seven minutes late. And you're like, oh, that's too bad. Um, but it's fine. Last summer, when Deutsche Bahn was having a particularly terrible uh, punctuality performance, we talked to John Worth about the whole European and German rail network and all these issues. Um, and this was, you know, the, one of their plans to, to try to address these issues. Um, it's worth going back and listening to that, and maybe also to the Konrad Kunze one about Deutschland als Autobahn, because we talk more about uh, car-specific things on this, so I'm sure we'll link to those. But, yeah, it was like, okay, well, Deutsche Bahn does have a, pro- uh, a project to try to make this better, and then they're like, nah, it's delayed for 40 years. Um, which which is basically just... means, like, you haven't even started, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, that's the kind of thing where you're like, you know what? It's not of my generation. I will be retired by then. Yeah. <laughs> and the people, the people who were going to be like at the, their peak careers to try to implement this now are like in middle school. Like, like it's just insane. Yeah. <laughs> so that that was good. Um, and other promising news um, we've seen on the, the sustainable transport front of not not looking that great. We've seen the the Dortmund Airport is now starting nonstop flights to the island of Zult, which is like the German Hamptons in the in the North Sea. Um, it's only like five hundred kilometers, like three hundred miles, and yeah. So you just love to see uh, you love to see domestic, really short haul flights for vacation destinations. So everything's going well. I'm sure that one really resonated with Julio a lot, being currently based in in Dortmund. Um. Yeah. All's all's well, and after the interview. Stick around because we've got an excellent little reading series about why it's actually bullying to joke about 
um, one of the three parties in government in Germany, the FDP. Yeah, including the finance minister, one of the most powerful people in all of Europe. But um, as this reading, as this column indicates, it's it's actually unfair and uh, erodes democracy if you make fun of them. Yeah, they've been um, taking mostly justified heat. In my, I mean, in our opinion, can I say in our opinion? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I'm not gonna, you're not gonna see see me justify the uh, the FTP's transport policies. Yeah, and and also they're blocking or just preventing climate initiatives. So we want to deliver some fair and balanced coverage of the other side of the debate. Yeah, be like, you know, we make fun of them a lot and say they're bad, so let's let's hear let's hear out the, the FTP defenders out there. So stick around for that post interview. Um yeah, and we just want to thank everyone, as always, so much for listening, especially to our patrons. Um we love you. You can subscribe to our premium feed, which has 23 episodes. Um, and coming. In the link in the show notes. And yeah, I think without further delay, let's cut to Julio and Ted updating us on all things Verkehr in Germany. All right, on to Julio. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Spaßbremse. We're joined again by now, I believe, a three-time returning guest, which might be a Spaßbremse record, our unofficial climate and transport correspondent, speaking to Giulio Mattioli, who is a sustainable transport researcher at the University of Dortmund. So, Giulio, thanks so much for coming back on. Hi, Ted. Ted. Thanks for having me for the third time. That's great. It's great to, yeah, it's great for you to be here. I, I believe we spoke, I was looking through the, the publications, I believe we spoke about exactly a year ago. And so that would have been early, early ample days. And I think we were talking about like spiking, uh, spiking gas prices after, um, after, right after the Russian full scale invasion of Ukraine in, in February. So that was, that was hot on everybody's mind. We were sort of talking about some of these, these short term spikes and, and what the, the state was doing to alleviate some of it. Um, but now we've had a bit more of an idea of how the the current German coalition has responded to, you know, both their pre-existing climate goals, some of the internal divisions within the coalition, as well as having to respond to to the crisis of the invasion and and the the rising um, rising fossil fuel prices and just general so- shortages and and where else they're going to source that from. So there's been a lot happening, and I thought it would be good to check in about, yeah, about how, how the coalition's doing, some EU developments, and, and just the, what I would say, the increasing centrality of cars to the German political discourse and it becoming a real kind of almost a US-style culture war thing. Um, we talked about this in the, the recent Berlin election, of course. So there's a lot to get into here, and I'm very excited to be speaking to uh, an amazing expert on this topic, Julio. So... If you could just do like an overview, like how how would you say the coalition is doing on climate relative to expectations? Obviously, that you know implies what were the expectations, but I think some people thought, okay, we're going to have a bit more progress. You know, we have um, the Greens are are in government again. You know, there were some worries about the FTP as a sort of pro car group, but I think there were relatively high expectations compared to the Merkel era. But of course, divisions in this ungainly three party coalition have been a bit of an issue. Could you just give like a general overview of how you see things having gone over the last year and a half or so? Yeah, so I remember at the time when the ample was was voted in and, and I mean, when they decided they were going to do the ample, 
coalition that uh, there were there were a lot of people who were pretty optimistic when it comes to how that would have could have bring a brought about change in transport and climate policy. And I remember I was skeptical, um, which which I always am in a way. But uh, I, I I think unfortunately I was right because my take back then was that we wouldn't see a big change in actual policy from from the cross coalition. Uh, so CDU plus SPD, it's just that it would be it would still be somewhere around the, that same that same balance but just with more fights because greens and fdp are more at odds with each other but if you take like the average of the two you sort of end up in the same place where you where you would be with with uh, cdu and spd it's just that mm. the two are further apart from each other so there will be a lot more um fights around that around it and i i think that's been the case for transport has been uh, i mean they they gave the transport ministry to the FTP in the end, um, the, the the Greens complained that a lot of things are not being done. Uh, but but yeah, that uh, I don't think in terms of actual policy, it's been particularly different from what a CDU SPD government would do without as many fights. Yeah, it seems like the the unpredictability of it is the the defining characteristic here. This kind of like whipsaw and these like clear divisions within the the Ampel traffic light coalition of yeah. the, the Greens, FTP, and SPD. Uh, the thing that's been in the headlines most recently is there was a, um, a proposed ban in the EU to, to make um, all cars be zero emission from 2035. And it for a while, that, that was... I didn't even know, actually. It hadn't like fully passed. People acted like it was just an, a rule that had been enacted and, um, already. Like I thought, it was, I thought it was fairly set in stone. And all of a sudden, it's emerged as an issue again where it looks like Germany is probably now the the largest country that wants to block it but after they announced their opposition uh, i believe Italy joined and then there might be a few others joining so as a as an italian uh, living in germany i'm sure you must be, have a have a lot of pride that uh, the two the two that these two countries are the ones blocking uh, blocking phasing out uh, emissions cars so yeah what what's going on with there how did do you have any insights into into how this erupted and, and became an issue? Because it went from like, you know, almost almost seeming like a done deal to now being this like huge hot button issue. Yeah, I think part of it, part of the problem is how the EU legislative process is reported in the media because it's got so many steps. Uh, you know, it's got to go through the, through the Commission and the Council and then the Parliament and then the Council. Then, then there's the trialogue and then there's there's a formal signature and so on. And I think every time one of these steps is, is, is made, then the press reported, uh, oh, the deal has been finalized. So, so like the public sort of thinks that it, it's there already. But really, this uh, the, they had gone through all the steps and there was just the, the, the formal signature left. And apparently there's also sort of a, a pre-step to that where they sort of ask the, the diplomats whether they, they, they are going actually to sign so that they don't book, you know, a session, a signing session for, for, for nothing. And, and, and there were enough countries in support for that. And then Germany switched sides. Uh, and I think Italy as well, um, between those two. Uh, there is a slight difference between the two because um, Italy had changed government between two of these steps. So clearly there was mm. the Draghi government which yeah. was a sort of very, very grand coalition, uh, which had 
which had approved that. And, and, and then there was like now the Meloni government, which is a far right government, and they decided to oppose it. So, I mean, it, it, I, I find it abysmal, but there's some sort of logic there that, that the government yeah. has changed between those two steps. Even though I don't approve it, uh, I think in the German case it's more puzzling because it's the same government, and in theory they should have agreed about that in their coalition agreement already. And the government includes the Greens, and still they they couldn't get uh, to to sign that at the last minute. So it was more of an unexpected bold face. And then clearly every anything that Germany does on 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 um, for good or bad on 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 the on, on the European uh, stage gets more scrutiny than what Italy does because I think the expectations are just higher. You know, like if Italians do something, if the Italian government does something unpredictable, people are just like, oh yeah, that's that's just what they do. Uh, we we can't rely on them. And if Germany doesn't, um, then it's uh, it it undergoes more scrutiny. One must say. Yeah, and it's given, it's sort of, seems like this is given cover too for other countries to come out of the woodwork yes. and start opposing it as well. Like, I think the, the, the Czechs are now against it, also Austria. pretty big. All, and all, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, so these other other countries that might benefit, but yeah, Germany, when Germany comes out in front and takes the heat, it gives a, it gives a little bit of cover for the, the rest of these countries. And so is that, are we now not going to ban fossil fuel cars in the, in the EU now, like, is this is this now a dead deal with the the level of opposition? Or it's sometimes it's tough to read into what seems like dysfunction and uh, sort of flip flopping within the German Ampelkoalition, because there have been other cases where the FDP will say they oppose something, and it's actually just a kind of bargaining position mm -hmm. to get out there in front. Uh, I know this was happening; it happened a bit with the liberalizing of the immigration laws where they had agreed to do it, and then all of a sudden the FDP says, actually, we're against this, but they just wanted some concessions on other things. So I know it's probably a bit confusing or, you know, there's still unknowns here, but, like, is this is this fully dead? Is, like, this uh, this proposed measure for phasing them out by 2035? I'm not sure, because I don't, I don't know myself well enough with the legislative process. What What I understood is that, there is no scope now for further negotiations. So um, mm. uh, it's not, we're, we're not at a stage where the deal can be reopened and renegotiated. Uh, it, it can be done, but it would mean like uh, setting the clock to zero and basically starting from scratch again, and it would take another few years. So either the deal passes as it is now with a few collateral things that that make the FTP accepted or other countries um, which could be other related regulations or some vague promise by by, 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 by the European Commission or it will it will just die and uh, yeah and we'll see what happens over the next few years uh, that that's what I understood and maybe that was the game all along you know if you wanted to 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 just you know make sure that, that there is no deal um, perhaps the best strategy would have been to you know, pretend you were negotiating in good faith up to a point, yeah. and then just just like throw up some some unrealistic demand that no one can really satisfy, uh, such as those that they have around issues, and uh, and then say, okay, if you, if you can't give me that unicorn, I, I won't sign at this stage, and and then that means that we have to start from scratch, and then maybe I'll do the same same play again in three four years when there's a new deal. Uh, I mean, if if, if I'm trying to be, you know, cynical <laughs> here. If if one wanted to do that, that that's how you would do it, probably. 
yeah, it seems yeah, these these things that keep getting keep getting dragged out and and it's like okay, come on guys, like I'm sick of I'm sick of reading about this. Yeah. I mean, no, it's your, this is your this is your job. I'm sure it uh, <laughs> I'm sure it tortures you even more. But you're like, wait, are we still talking about this? I thought this was a, a settled thing. Yeah. So related to this, and this is something I've seen a lot of fuss about recently, is after the the U.S. passed the the Inflation Reduction Act, and there are a lot of subsidies for like battery production and electric vehicles. If with this previous question, say we don't actually get a ban on internal combustion engines, how are electric cars proceeding? Like, how is the they the EU doing with with that? And then how are they sort of proceeding as just a market share? Because I know you've talked before on the the podcast about how even though uh, electric vehicle sales are increasing, it's still not becoming a very large part of the the fleet. Is that still the trend, or have they picked up? Have sales really picked up substantially in the last year to the point that this is becoming a a real significant share of the the vehicle fleet in Europe? They have picked up substantially, but not in the last year, like the year before that, there was a definitely mm. a big jump. And and some argue that it was related to the uh, new EU fleet standards kicking in uh, so that in order to meet those, like the, 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 the car makers were really pushing EVs um, for, for a while. And, and since then, it hasn't increased as much. I mean, it's still increasing. Um, and, but yeah, with the, the, after a couple of years of sales at, you know, in some countries, 20, 30%, and even, even more than that, it's starting to be like one or 2% of the fleet, I think in Germany. Uh, but still, it's, it's still relatively, um, low and it will take a long time to get to, to get to, to, to 50 or to 100 or to the 15 millions that, um, the German government is aiming to for 2030. So it's a slow process, and that's the funny thing. About, I was just reading about the Italian government saying, "Oh yeah, yeah, we're we're in favor of you know shifting to new propulsion modes, but gradually." Uh, the thing is, like that, what the EU is proposing is gradual. You know, like uh, it, 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 even if we get over the next twelve years to hundred percent of sales, then that means we have another ten, fifteen years before it's hundred percent of fleet. Uh, so it's all very gradual already and um, doesn't make sense. Those who say it should be more gradual are actually saying, you know, we, we, we just don't want it to happen. There, there, are, there are two theories there, basically. Uh, one, one is that uh, the, the, the so-called ban or phase-out doesn't really matter because the, the market has its own dynamic and it's all now set inevitably in the direction of EVs and it's not going to go back and, and EVs are going to be so cheap soon that no one will want to buy uh, an EV and uh, an ICE. No one will want to sell it from the car maker's side uh, in a few years already. So whether the EU makes some regulation about it or not, it's completely irrelevant. Some people yeah. argue that. And ICE in this case being internal combustion engine? Yes. Yes, right. Okay. Yeah. Just not to be not to be confused with the German uh, yeah. high speed train. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Opposite end of the climate Be spectrum. Very yeah. confusing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So some argue basically that the market would just take take care of itself, and and others argue that actually not because because a lot of things that have happened on the market uh, are, are due to to um, to what the EU has done on the regulation side, uh, and also that. Um, I think there's a lot of skepticism on, on the consumer side still, you know, partly fed by, by the media, by certain parties, by certain car makers. Uh, definitely, there's a, I think 
the polls show that there are a substantial share of the German population who is very, very skeptical towards EVs and can't imagine buying one. So I, you know, maybe all those who are buying an EV now are from a restrict, a limited pool of people who were open to buy them in the first place, and they're now replacing their vehicles and so on. And and then it will get harder, you know, to get to get to the hundred percent because you're get, getting to the real skeptics, to the real, you know, internal combustion engine lovers, to the real, um, you know, people who for whatever cultural war reasons don't want to be seen as green, uh, and so on. And so personally, I'm more on the skeptical side that the market will take care of itself uh, without any regulation. Yeah, there's a, it seems like there's a bit of a contradiction here because the people that are the most, that, that throw out the idea of, you know, uh, oh, like the market will solve it all. Uh, like, like, don't worry, we don't need to, we don't need to be a, a Verbotspartei, like the Greens or whatever, uh, you know, a, a, a party of, a party of bands. Um, but they're the ones also then stoking the culture war the most and, and like holding up the internal combustion engine as this like, beautiful like element of german culture i forget what party they were from but i saw some like clip of a talk show of a german politician saying like uh, the internal combustion engine is part of like our our western cultural heritage as if it should be like a the bmw plant should be like unesco world heritage site or something yeah, yeah. and like this idea like you know this is like you as a german you can be feel as proud of your like mercedes as like you know you would have like Bach or Goethe or something like like they're they're trying to stoke this feeling that you should like you need to hold on to your internal combustion engine at the same time they're saying oh well naturally they'll all just phase out eventually we don't have to actually enact any policies so I I'm always I'm always a bit confused like okay well which which way is it you know why are you why are you discouraging the process that you're saying is going to happen naturally yeah there's so much inconsistent arguing going on uh, another one would be the fdp when it comes to the tempo limit so the motorway speed limit one of the arguments they use is like why well, but why should we do that um to reduce carbon emissions since soon enough all cars will be evs practically now already and they don't emit any co2 and at any speed so uh you know it doesn't reduce emissions actually in this new ev world in which we're already and and when it comes to phasing out um, internal combustion engine vehicles and substituting them with EVs, they say, oh, no, wait a minute, 92% of cars, you know, over 90% of cars are internal combustion engines, and they will be for a long time because it takes a very long time to to replace the fleet. Uh, so that's why we should, um, you know, we should uh, look into e-fuels. So they're arguing the complete opposite thing. Um, and it, it, the only consistency you can find there if they is if they want to preserve the status quo, really. You know, uh, there is a consistency to their argument. It's just not manifest and they're just not being very honest about what, what the real aim is. Right. And it, there's another kind of tension here that I've noticed and I know you've talked about, too, which is that like even if we accept the premise that more and more electric vehicles are going to be on the road, which I guess, you know, all else equal is good, but as always, all else is not equal and cars are getting ever bigger. So I've seen studies that, for example, like a, a large EV SUV is actually more, uh, more carbon intensive than it, like a small internal combustion engine car in some cases with these comparisons they make. I would guess that would be especially true in Germany, which the electricity you would use to fuel your electric vehicle is some of the dirtiest in Europe because Germany still uses so much coal, as we've talked about in other episodes. So all these transport climate things all kind of tie together. But this seems like another 
another contradiction there. Whereas if you're just letting the market run and like the market prefers these massive vehicles, which as a as a cyclist is terrifying to me for having an SUV that you can't even hear because it's electric, just sneak up behind you. But that's a slightly separate issue. But yeah, like there's there's these other trends that seem to be pushing against the idea that everything is going to be more and more climate friendly as well, right? Yeah, <clears throat> uh, that, yeah, that, that was an interesting tweet because uh, it um, the one you mentioned that, that that article with the graph of of the with the large EV which was more polluting than I mean more CO two intensive than a very small IT. It was very interesting because it could be interpreted in both ways actually because um, some people interpret it as uh, oh look you know like uh, the the size of the vehicle can offset. EV and the others were, were arguing, but, but basically that only applies to the two extremes, you know, the two, two, two very extreme cases. And if you look at the distribution, regardless of size, most large EVs are less polluting than um, that tiny uh, ICEs. And so it's still worth it. And I think both arguments make sense. Uh, it's a, it, it's, it is then a question of magnitude, right? So we can expect that the trend towards larger vehicles will reduce the... the, the uh, the magnitude of, of CO2 uh, emissions to some extent, but it, it will not um, reverse it or negate it that I don't think the order of magnitude is such that, you know, e- emissions per kilometer will, will increase rather than decrease. Uh, they will still decrease, but less than they would otherwise. So, yeah, these are also uh, must also be taken into account. And I guess there's like another, I mean... There's there's always these studies and comparisons, and as not an expert in the field, I'm sure I'm sure when you look at it, there's all these assumptions behind everything that, um, you know that that are obviously crucial to the findings. But another really silly one, I think it was touted in a was it a Swiss magazine where they they did this thing that was um, like saying cycling is actually more uh, fuel inefficient than driving a car because if you ate like 100% beef. And the car was like really, really small. Like they, they had all these crazy assumptions that that were trying to say like taking public transport and cycling is worse for the environment yeah. than than driving. And I know you uh, you had a fun time debunking their claims, but maybe you could talk a little bit about that. But I think more interesting is what is what that says. Where they don't quite want to. The pro car side doesn't want to admit that this is just an emotional thing, and they just want their car, and so they just sort of throw out these like pretty pseudoscientific findings to try to defend it. And it's a it's an interesting thing in the discourse rather than just being willing to say, no, I, I like my car. Like, let me let me just keep it, which I guess is yeah. more what I'm used to from the US. But right. it's funny because in the, the German speaking world, they still like they still need to kind of justify it, like, quote, scientifically. But it's a bit iffy. Yeah, that's very interesting with the comparison with the US. Yeah, I, 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 I see it absolutely the same way as you do. So there is definitely a side which is like very much pro cars as they are now uh, for, you know, whatever reason, practical, emotional, you know, just habit or whatever uh, identity. And, and and then there's sort of almost not an industry, but there are many actors who just, you know, produce silly, uh, weak arguments uh, that, that uh, basically amount to it's not worth it with those new vehicles it's not worth it with alternatives to what we have now and and they don't really stand up to scrutiny um 
but they sort of give an excuse to people to just jump on them and say, okay, yeah, in theory, I would be in favor, but, you know, it's not worth it. So what's the point? Uh, and as you say, it's very hypocritical in a way. You know, people will, you know, just, just want to appear as they, they would be behind this, you know, this green transition if it was really green, but it's not, as I read on some sort of some right-wing tabloid. Uh, and yeah. so I so I won't support it. So yeah, it, it is very hypocritical. And what what really um, you mentioned that Swiss example. What really depresses me, and uh, also I find very shameful, is how some colleagues uh, play into that. Colleagues, as in uh, academic researcher, not not from our field of transport research, because because we tend to say sensible things. But it's usually. And of, usually people from other fields and, and often e economists, actually, who uh, just, you know, publish work, non-peer-reviewed working papers on the website, debunking the entire science about EV emissions or so on, uh, which then get picked up on, by the build despite being absolutely wrong. And uh, or this guy even I, I I in Switzerland I thought this guy had done the same had done a sort of working paper but it turns out he he didn't even do that he just wrote a column a column in a newspaper with his own calculations um, and and uh, it, he didn't even go as far as you know to really put it in something that looks like a paper. Um, and funnily enough, I was I was invited to give a guest lecture on how on transport and climate change and how you you know how you calculate the life cycle emissions of different modes and how you compare them. And I I used that that column as an exercise for the students to say, okay, tell me now after after all I've told you, um, what is wrong. Tell me everything that is going wrong with this calculation. Um, and, and they did. Uh, and they, 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 you know, um, second year planning students were able to to pick up ev everything that was wrong with it, and then and there was a lot. Not a great place to be as a as a researcher if it, your your article quite quickly becomes the uh, this is what not to do article. But it's I mean yeah it's it's this point too, and I'm sure it frustrates you from your perspective because like you said you know if there's a like a high standard of peer reviewed research, um, I don't want to overly glorify like academic journals which have their own problems but you know ideally you'd think if it's published in a major journal there would be some kind of verification of the findings but by the time you read if you're reading about it in you know a tabloid like build and it'll just say you know professor at university of blank it's like research found this and and like you said there's no by the time you're reading that in the paper you kind of i think assume like oh it's a it's an academic this would have been an academic leave like verified work but whether you just put that on your website or actually publish it in a journal by the time you're reading about it second third hand in other publications there's no actual delineation and there'll be this i remember this big media buzz about this quote like study but it was just it was just a guy kind of making stuff up right yeah and it's such an abuse of, of our profession because basically you're just using your title to project some authority that you don't have because you don't have an, an authority I mean, in general, we shouldn't talk about authority, but if you have an authority, it's within it's within your field, right? Uh, yeah. And I, I and you know, just just wading into other people's fields and 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 pretending to to just debunk the entire consensus there is something that should bring you and your institute in, into disrepute, right? If I were to you know suddenly publish something about financial economics and just say everyone is wrong until now says i 
transport researcher, I would, I mean, I would be terrified of what people would think of me. You know, why, how, how could I go around and, you know, talk to my colleagues again after doing that? I would be, you know, like professionally, I would, I would feel um, very, very much afraid. And uh, but I, 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 it seems that this does not apply to some people, maybe because they've got tenure and, and they, you know, their employment position is not precarious as mine and they don't have to rely on reputation as much. But I, I do think that, you know, it, it, it is an abuse. Yeah, I mean, two, two trends that are not isolated to this case at all is a Germans using or the German speaking world using titles to demand uh, prestige and credibility even when they might not have it and I assume this person was an economist this researcher is that right uh the, the one in Switzerland was yeah yeah and economists also wading into other people's field and, and telling them telling them what what to do so I yeah. think yeah this is unfortunately not, not an isolated case <laughs> this 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 dynamic is yeah. a, a well a well-worn uh well-worn one um but this there's this other trend and this this relates to these like kind of tensions i keep bringing up um there's another one where you kind of where people gesture towards the market as this thing that just exists and then they enact policy that perpetuates the the market trends that they say are just inevitable so i know the the ministry of transport run by the fdp has published findings um, touting, you know, the the amount of demand that will increase on the German roads and how much traffic will increase by that date. And they say, okay, well, here's this set in stone thing that will happen based on our findings. But then they'll they also want to increase things like the the um, commuters allowance and then build build more highways as well. And they'll say, well, this shows how we need to build more highways. But as you've talked about on earlier episodes with you this kind of well-known concept of like induced demand, right? That people will, people will often live a fixed time away from places. So if you make more autobahns, then people will use them more. And so it's like, oh, here's this inevitable thing, but we're actually creating the inevitability by responding to this quote, inevitable thing. Could you talk a little more about what the, the policy changes or the policy dynamics that are still consistently inducing Germans to keep driving aside from this cultural stuff we talked about? Yeah, that, that this is a big one everywhere, really, not not just in Germany. It's um, and it's been debated for like very long time within our field, and it's this idea which we call predict and provide. Uh, so exactly what the German ministry is doing, it's just, you know predicting certain levels of traffic based on certain factors, mainly actually economic growth, um, and then uh, saying we need to provide for this demand we need to accommodate it we need to um, avoid that this increased demand and increased traffic results in congestion and 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 therefore we will expand our road capacity and this is a lot of how how actually our societies have become car dependent because we've we've been doing that for decades now since the first cars started appearing it in Europe people were saying oh but look at the US the U.S. is like 10, 20 years ahead uh, than now. So we, we will just assume that we will go the same way as the, as the U.S. Uh, and and by, at similar levels of economic of GDP, we will have the same amount of cars and, and so on. We will project this further. And we will provide all, now already for those cars that we're expecting in 20 years. And, and by doing that, we've, you know, like large motorways were there um, 
before many cars were there and um and, and and by doing that, we've they've encouraged car, car use, uh, it, which is something that we call in our in our field we call it uh, induced demand, because like the amount clearly the amount of infrastructure that is available, the whether it's congested or not, has an influence on whether people use cars or not and how much, and the speed of travel that you have on those on those roads influences your travel time, which is then you know. A, uh, the the basis on which you decide how far you will live from the city or not, um, and and so all these things sort of self reinforce. It's a self reinforcing dynamic to some extent, but this is typically not so much taken into account into those models, and so we keep fueling this self reinforcing dynamic. Uh, and I think since the nineties that in in the transport transport research and transport profession there's been a, a change of thinking. And saying, look, we, we we can't keep going further with this predict and provide. We should rather be moving towards more of a decide and provide model, where we um, you know we we decide which level of, of of traffic we want and and of car use, and then we try to manage the the, the demand rather than 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 provide for it. We try to manage it with things like tolls, with things like you know trying to encourage people to use other modes. And interesting, one of the main arguments there is that you can't just build your way out of congestion indefinitely. At some point, like the you know the, the need for new road capacity will become such that you probably don't want to go there. And that's already the case in many contexts, like cities, where basically in order to make those motorways, you would have to tear down large parts of the cities, as as they've done in 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 many places. I mean, in some places in Europe and in many places in the US, as I understand it. Uh, and um, and so eventually you can't just build uh, as much. But Germany has built a, quite a lot of motorways. It has one of the densest motorway networks, and um, and it doesn't seem to 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 want to change its approach. Um, uh, there, there's a government that has changed its approach recently, and it's in Wales, in the, in the UK. They've just said um, we want to radically change the way in which we make road building decisions. Not just based on this predict and provide uh, manner, uh, not just taking into account of travel time savings and and things like that. We want that really to fit with our climate priority, with our quality of life priorities, with our pollution priorities, and so on. And if expanding a road uh, sort of fits with, it, with with these goals, we will do it. Uh, it's not like they're they're having a, a a total moratorium, but they're saying if it doesn't fit with that, we will not build. Uh, new roads and 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 that's the first step but but many countries are still in in the in the previous uh, stage yeah i mean also in the in the uk where i am now in, in oxford they they're trying to do this 15 minute city thing um where um i don't even know if they've called that here in the local government but they're they're trying to just like add a few more bike lanes and, and restrict different traffic um because try having a like a mass, a massive road through like an old medieval city center where all the traffic is trying to go creates all these nightmares. And so they're trying to, you know, do some traffic filters and various things. And there was this huge protest the other weekend where everyone's like, I will not be, I will not be stuck here. I will not be trapped here. You're taking away my freedom. And it's like, you know, it's a bit, it's almost a bit like tiresome to point out hypocrisy over and over, but there is an extremely funny aspect of people saying the government's taking away my freedom to drive and it's like well who built the roads man like what do you what do you think we're doing here these roads are not these roads are not a natural part of the landscape but it's like 
in people's minds they kind of are like it's like with well, no the, the roads are just here we just need them and like we should get to use them and there's no there's no real acknowledgement that like those are here from policy and like policy should have the ability to to restrict them or change them as well but it's it's become so kind of like naturalized and this ties into i guess the previous episode we had with uh konrad kunze about Deutschland als Autobahn, like Germany as the motorway. Um, and he obviously meant that metaphorically. But what you're saying about this continuous building, it's like, no, are we are we going to literally turn all of Germany into an Autobahn? Like maybe the maybe the title won't be metaphorical in a few years The with some of the, the way it seems like things are going, you know, famously in Berlin too with the A100 going through some of these neighborhoods. And it's like in the U.S. now, it's it's kind of considered what we did in the, like the mid-century period with... Um, the building the interstates and bulldozing a lot of communities off it, you know, given the, the racial hierarchies in the U S that was disproportionately communities of color. And it's, it's now touted as like, this was a, just an absolute atrocity. Um, what, what we did to, to these communities, but it feels like sometimes these lessons haven't been quite learned as much. And it's like, well, what are we, what are we really doing here? If it's like, we need people in the city to get around more easily. So we're going to build highways, but in doing so, we're going to get rid of the city. <laughs> it's yeah. like, uh, what was the point in the first place here? Like, yeah. What are we doing? And I think there's, there's a very interesting Berlin element to it. Um, cause if you think about, you know, the, the, the equivalents of Berlin in Europe, like Paris and, and London, they're not thinking about new highways at all. You know, there, there, there are no debates about building new motorways. Uh, they're, they're doing very different things. They're doing, you know, the pedestrianization or, you know, restricting the, the peripherique in, in, in Paris as well in the future, or they're doing the low traffic neighborhoods. So they, 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 they're really completely doing some other kind of policy. And Berlin is sort of stuck into these things that were in fashion a couple of decades ago. And I think it has to do a lot with sort of so some Berlin complexes of having been left behind, you know, that we need to catch up. You know, we've been we've been sort of frozen into this underdeveloped state by decades of uh, wall of Berlin wall, and now we're finally catching up. And so we need to have our own big motorways that that makes a full circle around the cities, as the big cities do. Uh, as our competitors do, except that their competitors, they're, you know, they're 20, 30 years ahead and they're thinking about completely different things. But I think some politicians in Berlin and, and perhaps some of the population as well are still thinking in those terms of, you know, we want to show we're a big city and that's how you do it. And I think some comments by um, the, the SPD mayor who said, you know, we're not Bullerbu, there are cars here, could be read in, in that, in that, in that um, way. That they, they there's sort of um, um, a catching up mentality or an inferiority complex that they have. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I never thought about that in the context of motorways, but I think it definitely holds up with the what they're doing to the Berlin city center, for example, where they're building all these like old school like Prussian palace style buildings where. It was, you know, formerly like East Berlin. It had the more kind of GDR look. I think we've talked about like the Palace de Republique is now like the, the Humboldt Forum. And they're, but they're redoing like a number of buildings there and trying to like create this old European city center feel. And it's like, you know, Berlin is kind of a weird looking city. Like I think it's, I think it's cool and it's nice. And there's, there's like pretty neighborhoods, but I kind of like the disjointed element of it. That's kind of part of the city, but you feel like 
some of the city leadership is so desperate to be like, all we want to do is be a normal European capital. Like we're not, we don't want to have to like carry around this you know, Cold War baggage. And I guess, you know, the, the World Wars as well with um, making way for the, the new building during the Cold War with all the destruction. But they're like, no, 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 we want to just, can't we just be like Vienna or something? Yeah. And they're like, and they're just, they're so desperate to take away what makes the city unique. And I never thought about framing the, the motorways in that context, but I think that, that makes a lot of sense. And in Berlin, it's also frustrating because they, they want to, they sort of pretend that they're like Copenhagen or, or Amsterdam. Like they're always talking about how, oh, you know, this is a, a Fahrradstadt, like a, a cycle city, which they also happen to say in Oxford and cycling is also terrifying here. So there's this weird, some cities have this weird arrogance, but Berlin seems like that. And I think you've used the term like resting on their laurels before where they, they sort of, think it's okay to just say that like yeah we we like good cycle infrastructure but then it's it's not really the experience of living there and i guess they're they're building some infrastructure but also widening the roads and it feels like everything's getting pulled in every direction mm. and there's no cohesive plan and like is that is that limited by the german laws that that restrict what cities can do or is that actually berlin choosing to do this cuz i think it's Sometimes, sometimes it's not always entirely clear. Like, would Berlin be more sustainable, transport friendly, if it were not for German laws, or is this actual real decisions there that are being made to not be as sort of progressive as they could be on these things? I think it's a bit of both. Uh, certainly, in general, German cities, in some respects, find it harder to to implement certain. Uh, new things because uh, the legislation is particularly restrictive both in terms of what it allows and both in term also in terms of uh being defined at the at the federal level not not the, i think we talked about in one of the previous episodes um some some things are regulated at the national level so for example yeah. uh there, there's a lot of german cities who would like to introduce a uh, uh, tempo 30 so the uh, generalized uh, 30 kilometers per hour speed limit uh, or across most of roads, um, and and they can't do that because it has to be allowed by the the, the federal ministry, uh, and and so many cities, I think, four hundred would like to do it from all uh, with mayors from all across the political spectrum, and interestingly, in Italy you have the opposite um, situation where you have two cities now, Bologna and Milan, who want to do that, two large cities. Um, and and the, the the national transport ministry, uh, which is no less than Matteo Salvini, he's absolutely against it, but he has no power over it. You know, like he mm. just can't do anything. If if a city wants to set the general the, the speed limit generalized to thirty kilometers, it can't do it. In Italy, it has the power to, uh, but here it doesn't. Uh, so in some, there are some some rigidities there, but I also think that the uh, the parties are very very. Um, cautious with 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 the public uh, on the other hand there are some things that are happening so uh, recently they've allowed cities to set um their um the price of a residential parking um fees so you know it permits you know uh, it, w it was limited to 30 uh, euros max per uh, year uh, nationally per year. yeah, yeah. um uh, <laughs> And and now they've allowed uh, the lender and the cities to set their own. And some cities have, uh, many cities actually are have increased them substantially. 
uh, like tenfold or something. And they're even making a difference between larger and smaller vehicles, so penalizing SUVs and things like that. So some things are moving, but um, yeah, not all of them. It's like the, the, the city speed limit thing reminds me of that meme. It's like the the myth of the consensual 30 kilometer hour speed limit that politicians say, I consent, and the, the voters say, I consent, and then it's Volker Vissing. Isn't there someone you forgot to ask? Yeah. So we talked before, you know, we've talked a bit about cars and this, and I mentioned the, the Konrad Kunze episode. He talks, you know, about this, like the cultural the cultural side of things, and, and, and we mentioned that earlier in the episode as well. But you've you've written this paper recently about car dependency. Um, it was in uh, Energy Research and Social Science, um, co-authored with with three others. Um, you know, and actually, this was a couple of years ago, I guess. But I was wondering if you could just sort of lay out quickly, like what, from your perspective, you know, in addition to the cultural elements, the actual incentives and political economy that create this ongoing cycle of car dependence, because. It's like it feels like every every time someone makes a proposal, it's like there's there's always this counter to it, and it feels like we're stuck in this self reinforcing thing. And we've talked about it in Germany, like specifically with some of the things that go on. But could you just lay out like that that general kind of argument of these structures that feel like we're stuck in this just like discursive circle over and over? Yeah. So with that paper, we identified five. Well, it was basically a review of other research, really, but um, I, I, I think we summarized it in an original way. And what we did is to identify five elements of this political economy, which then sometimes we use a, an evil pentagram to depict it, at least online. I mean, it's not on the paper, but um, so the five elements. One is the automotive industry, which is often forgotten. So that there's this very large and very important industry, which for many reasons, which I will not get into, really needs to put out um, as many vehicles and as large as vehicles as possible in order to remain in in in, in you know in the market. Uh, and so there is a whole whole lot of pressure on you know just accommodating all of creates a lot of pressure in, on accommodating all of these vehicles and all of those tons of of, of steel. Um, and then the other element was like the car infrastructure, like things we've talked about, such as uh, you know uh, how how roads are provided for and and how uh, parking space is provided and, and things like that and and then there's more of the land use aspect and car dependent settlement patterns which which come about in, in many ways and and then the cultural aspect and 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 then we we also talked about a bit about the the what 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 is into the political economy of public transport and how it is provided and how that relates to 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 car growth so um basically uh at the end of the day the argument was that um it is so complex to do anything about car dependence because as soon as you start to pull one thread you know it's it's all so interrelated with the others that that uh, it it doesn't un unravel as easily you know like there's always some rigidity in some other part and they they all sort of hold together um yeah and also the the the, the other interesting thing is how apolitical car dependence becomes so not just in terms of you know Pretty much all parties sort of support the status quo uh, to different degrees. You know, things like the Tankrabat, uh, we talked about it the last time. It, 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 it's one of the few policies where you can find, you know, the linker 
agreeing with the SPD, agreeing with the CDU, agreeing with the FDP, agreeing with the AfD, and the Greens are pretty much the only ones who you know, sort of don't agree with them. And it, it is, you know, sort of political pacifier and, 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 and not framed as, as something political, it's framed as, you know, common sense, just, just what people need across the political spectrum. Uh, yeah. And, I like uh, this phrase you use about the, the apolitical facade around pro-car yeah. decision-making. And then like this quoting from the paper, uh, car dependence benefits from the creation of an apolitical context of decision-making where pro-car decisions are perceived as synonymous with economic growth, modernity and development, and thus gain support for multiple factions. I thought that that sums it up so well because when you're on the more sort of anti-car side of things, it just feels like you said, all these parties agree across the spectrum and it's like, wait, how, how do we like denaturalize this as, as the way to do it? And I, I thought you guys um, framed that quite well. Yeah, it's a, it's a hard job because a lot of what, what we do or, or try to do is exactly what you said, denaturalize. So just say people, okay, wait a minute. Like the entire reality that you, that you just see around you, that you see just as normal and taken for granted, there's actually a lot more behind it. Try to think about, take a, try and, and take a step back and think about it, how it came out and, and what, how it could be in another way. Um, and it's, uh, I mean, to me, it sort of comes natural because I studied sociology. And one of the first things that they, they taught us was this idea of sociological imagination, which is exactly that, you know, just try and look at everything around you that, you know, the, the regular functioning of society, which you take for granted and question it. And, 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 and try and imagine how it could be different. So it's, um, I find it a very fascinating sociological topic in, in that way, the, the, the car and everything that revolves around it. But for most people, it's just, it, 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 it's unnatural to do that. You know, like there are things that we just, we just take for granted and, and, and don't question. It's like the, the roads were always there. They'll always be there. We can't do anything about it. It's just, yeah. I mean, another another one of these kind of cultural elements, too, is um, the Germany is now also opposing an EU regulation that would require regular testing of senior citizen drivers, like every five years or something, to make sure they're safe on the roads. And it's, I believe Germany is also opposing that. Is that correct? They said they would. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's something that personally it's always struck me because in Italy you have some regular tests. I think for everyone every ten years, and then when you get older, it's every five years. And uh, even though the tests are not particularly stringent and so on, but the the the, the, the idea that that you need to be regularly tested, for, you know, in order to keep your your uh, driver's license is just. As I said, as I just said, take uh, so it was something I took for granted, and then I w when I moved here, I realized here there is either no test at all or very little. So basically, you, you basically just get your driver's license for life. And I, I know anecdotally of people who have uh, elderly parents who were really a danger to themselves and to others, and they the the the, the their children took matters into their own hands and and um you know cut the wires in the engine just to 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 stop them from driving because there was no other way uh and it's always struck me as as, as weird um but yeah i think like uh, eu eu countries differ in that respect and uh that's another one where um uh, Germany has uh, a more lenient approach towards cars and apparently wants wants to keep it and does not want to um, fall into line with the, with the rest of Europe. I think what Europe is proposing is very lax, actually. It's just that 
you know, they, it, it, they will have to be renewed uh, every every five years or so. But then the the the, the ways in which they will be renewed and and the, the things that will have to be tested, it, it, it's still up to for for the member states to decide. So I think there's plenty of scope for Germany to just you know uh, still do it in a very lax way if they want to. But e even what the EU is proposing seems to be too much for missing. So yeah, I mean when you ha when you're Pro car parties are also have very old voter bases. I guess uh, you can see the interest lining up on that one. The other things are sort of talking about these sort of irrational and sort of almost pathological cultural things. And this is like I don't I don't support what they're doing. But it, in terms of just pure political uh, coalition building, you can see why they would do this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, this will this is even crazier than the non regular testing in Germany. Is a lot of U.S. states particularly the ones with like large military bases, they have reciprocity with Germany. So if you have a U.S. driver's license, you can just show them that and they'll like trade it out for a German license. Right. But in the U.S., you don't need to uh, drive a manual transmission to get your driver's license. Uh -huh. So and in Germany, you do, I believe. So you can take the extremely easy driving test, get a U.S. driver's license on an automatic car, get then get a German driver's license from that without ever having to show that you know how to drive like a stick shift or that you know any of the German traffic laws at all, which are the signs and everything are really different. So like I had a German driver's license before someone had even told me like the, like the Rex for links, like right, right before left thing in the U S we have like stop signs and it's who gets there first in Germany. It's the right person goes yeah. know, at an intersection yeah. and they like was able to get a German driver's license without like, I, I just learned how to, I knew how to drive a, a manual anyway, but hypothetically wouldn't have needed to do that or know any German traffic laws. And then you have a German dri like driver's license that's good for you know, 15 or 20 years or something. Yeah. Just really, really, really crazy policy. Um, so I, I've never gotten into a car wreck. I'm, I'm a good driver. I figured it out. <laughs> but uh, to the to the limited extent I, I ever have to drive. But but uh, just a pretty crazy thing that they even allow for that of a massive, massive loophole. So that's not how you got your German license, like through this exchange. No, I did. Okay. I did do it that. I All did right, do okay. it that way. Yeah, I'm just saying, like, you could hypothetically get that and not not know how to even yeah. like, drive a, a car that you would get there or or know any of the rules. So it's just really, really ridiculously easy. Yeah, bit of a scary thing. And yeah, so I think last note on cars, like. There's this talk of like, this gets back to this technology thing. There's this always this talk of like e-fuels as this like big, as this big savior. Um, what, like, what are, what, like, what's, what do they mean by e-fuels? And like, is there, are there developments there? Like, is that really going to be this technology that, that can save sustainability and so on? Or like just a little bit about the role of like, yeah, different types of fuel alternatives in the German climate and traffic discourse. Yeah, so e-fuels are, I'm not an expert on the technicalities, but basically they're um, fuels that are synthetically created. Um, and if they are made, and, and they're sort of equivalent to, to existing uh, fossil fuels um, like petrol or kerosene. And so basically the advantage with them, the big selling point, is that they can be used as sort of drop-in substitutes. They can, you know, we, we don't have to change the technology, or at least not as much. On, on, on the vehicle side, we can just put some new fuels into there, which work in the exact same way uh, at, at the point of use. 
but they they are green. They don't they don't have emissions. And and if these fuels are made with 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 uh, with low carbon or, or zero carbon energy, they 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 can be. But the problem with e-fuels is that uh, they tend to, some 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 people compare them to champagne in that they're they're they're, they're, they're rare, they're expensive to make. Uh, there's not so much of them. It's very hard to scale what the whatever production capacity there is already, and and so it has to be they and and they have to be used as. Um, as, as you would use champagne, so it just 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 for you know in, in in some very niche sector where you really can't avoid it and so on, and so the consensus among researchers is that, for example, it makes sense to use e-fuels in the aviation sector because there are, there are so few alternatives to to airplanes as we have them now. You can't you know you can't just put batteries on airplanes as as you would do with with, with cars, at least not for for a few decades. Um, so it makes sense to use them there because there really is no uh, other way of decarbonizing aviation. Uh, but it doesn't make much sense in the road sector because there is a competitive alternative, which is you know electric vehicles. And electric vehicles also are um, just just by the way they function, they tend to need less energy in general. You know, regardless of how CO two intensive the energy is, uh, they 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 need a lower amount of energy. Which means that if you had, you know, I don't know, a certain amount of wind turbines that you that you wanted to use to power electric to power vehicles, if you use them to uh, power batteries, you know, you will be able to get those cars running for a certain amount of kilometers. If you use that green energy to create e-fuels, which then are put into the the combustion engine and and uh, and, and burnt. You will get those cars to drive on, uh, you know, a, a much smaller amount of of, of kilometers. Uh, and besides the fact that that fuel will, will cost uh, a lot more as well, so they're really not seen as a as a as a competitive alternative for cars. Maybe for trucks, because uh, it, it's easier for. But even that is debatable. But certainly for cars, there's really seen. A, there was a study in Nature recently that ranked different sectors. In terms of how much they lend themselves to e-fuels, and literally the road sector was the last one, along with heating, I think, within the home, which is another thing that's been debated recently in relation to e-fuels. So I read the consensus is there that it doesn't make much sense, um, and so the way in which they're using these debates is sort of to dangle a carrot in the future and say. You know, uh, actually, there is an alternative. We don't have to to ban the combustion engine. We can keep it uh, because eventually there was be the, there will be this technological miracle which um, which will solve everything. And I see that uh, I saw yesterday the transport ministry was even arguing that sort of implying that e-fuels would make w- w- would ensure that car mo- car use will remain affordable. Which is like the complete opposite, because they, they will be so expensive if they're ever made, um, and, and so on. So they're they're used as one of those discourses of climate delay, uh, where you you know you you're trying to um, suggest that there will be a technological miracle in order to actually keep the current technology and keep things that they are. Yeah, no, it's interesting because I'm. You know, as a non-expert in this field, but you can see, like, it has this kind of discursive 
power, right? You're like, oh, because I think the average like reader, like, you know, you kind of don't really want to change your lifestyle that much. It's like, can be a bit annoying. And so you're kind of looking for a reason to like justify why you don't need to change what you do. And then it, it's very helpful for that if the, the government just sort of throws out these buzzwords and you're like, oh yeah, maybe EVs will save us. Maybe e-fuels will save us, you know, whatever. Okay, okay. And you just sort of, they're figuring out the technology. Those, those smart engineers, they'll, they'll figure something out. And it's like this way this way of constantly deflecting from demands to actually change the infrastructural reality, it seems. And I, and I don't always know, like, like, are they being cynical when they throw these things out? Or do they actually believe that these fuels will save us? But I do think it's pretty effective in, in deflecting demands for change. There's, there's also, like, you hear a lot about hydrogen in Germany, too. They seem to be a bit obsessed with like using hydrogen as a fuel. Can you just briefly, I know, I know you have to go in a few minutes, but what, anything about the, the hydrogen discourse and sort of, it seems like an obsession because I ha don't hear about that in many other countries. Yeah, de definitely. Uh, um, I mean, again, I'm not an expert on the details, but many of these e-fuels also involve hydrogen. So sometimes they're referred in one way, sometimes in another. Okay. So yeah. this all, this goes together. Yeah, there is some overlap. Thing. They're not exactly the yeah. same thing, but there is some overlap. But, but definitely, yeah, I, and I think that the tragic thing about it is that it's working. If you look at the polls, there are huge majorities in favor of providing subsidies to hydrogen for cars. And, and there, are, there, there, is, there is majorities against subsidies for electric vehicles. So, like, the public has been, at least here in Germany, has been convinced that there is a miraculous alternative that we're not pursuing. Uh, and there is a, a dodgy alternative that we're actually pursuing like electric vehicles, but uh, but that actually doesn't really work. That's what a lot of the public has been has been convinced of, and it's completely at odds with reality. But it is like consistent with the uh, demand for keeping things as they are, and I think that's that's what makes it appealing. It's a bit like finding huge majorities for eternal life, you know, like people, <laughs> you know, or unicorns or you know cornucopias, <laughs> you know, people people would like for those things to exist. It would be convenient, which, uh, but but they don't, and and so there is, I think there is an interest by several actors to convince the public that these things exist so that they can use those arguments in daily life or to, you know, uh, and I, 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 to your question, I think it's always a mix of, you know, some people are being more cynical about it and more deliberate about it and lying, knowing that they're lying, but some others are true believers. I think it, to get into certain positions, you need to either to become a true believer or to be at the point where you don't even make a difference between what you believe and what you don't, you will just say whatever you have to say you know it's, it's really frustrating because it feels like like you said we if there is an achievable thing that's right there it's then unrealistic we can't yeah. uh you know it can't be afforded there's not enough you know Lindner is just saying we need to tighten the budget and cut spending you know things like trying to make the the Burgergel, the sort of Hartsfield replacement better oh no no this is too expensive we can't do this or like you know evs are out there you know we can't do that we can't build you know improve the train network substantially so everything that is tangible that we should theoretically know how to do no no no, that's impossible but the thing the thing that's actually seemed for now technically impossible okay well that's going to save us all and it's like why don't why can't we achieve the the tangible things but so it's like this mix of extreme hope and then extreme yeah. cynicism about the the near-term things and it's like you have the feeling that if hydrogen technology could be implemented and we were we were there and we were on the verge of, of that being successful, they would have to 
come up with some other type of fuel that's far in the future that to then train the focus to that. It's like it has to always be just over the horizon and anything that is a potentially useful change in the short run. Nope, can't do it. Yeah, they they would definitely do that. I think they would. If we were, if if use were really a, a, a coming, and, and that that would make uh, car use um, more expensive. And I think what they would do is, uh, no, we need to keep it. Uh, you know, we don't have to set quotas for if use because that makes the ordinary citizen pay too much, and 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 we need to do something against it. Uh, I think they, it's exactly as you said. You know, like it's it's uh, this optimism for technology, but the technology is always far away it's always a mirage it's something that it's you know it's pre- it, the real function is to prevent us to do something with the technologies that we have now and it's, yeah. it's funny because they 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 sort of you know portray themselves as those technological optimists but actually they're very negative about the technologies that we have now or that they're coming coming in now and my personal pet peeve is people who um, are incredibly optimistic about nuclear and e-fuels and say this is happening you know we have a, we'll have a massive elect- nuclear program which will make all electricity zero carbon in a couple of years and then we'll make e-fuels out of that and power cars but no evs are not happening i don't see that happening that that's going too slow it's like as you said it's a complete mix of over optimism on certain technologies and and over uh, pessimism on others and it doesn't make any sense until you think that it's like the the, the goal is just to keep things as they are <laughs> yeah the the impossibility is is a feature of the technology not not a downside yeah it's like it has to be impossible that's the point um so we'll like i said we can we can close out here uh in in just a minute um on a slightly well it's sort of a dark uh, i was gonna say a humorous note but it's sort of dark humor i mentioned some alternative types of transport um you know of course the the most obvious one in germany would be the rail network um deutsche bahn was supposed to have this new like deutschland talk this new kind of plan for operation we talked this summer with with john worth about the the woes of the deutsche bahn network um we've talked about it with you a little bit um you know germany kind of has this uh, all of the above um, transport approach that's built a lot of autobahns but also um, has a pretty strong density of the rail networks they've now just delayed the the implementation of the new plan until uh, 2070 i believe a 40-year delay over what it was supposed to be which i find to be a hilariously german combination of delay and precision instead yeah. of just saying we can't implement this yeah. being like no we're going to implement it exactly 40 years yeah. late which is so hilarious i feel like in the u.s they would just like they would just call it off and be like that's yeah. not happening never mind yeah. but the germans like you can see you see them calculating it out be like no no 2070 we can do it none of us will be working here we'll all be dead or pensioners by then but 2070 i tell you do you have any insight into like why this delay happened or, or what's going on at all? I just found it really hilarious when this was posted. No, to be honest, I, I haven't followed that. And I, I, I wouldn't know what to say other than I had the exact same feeling about, you know, this mix of, you know, German sloppiness and over precision, which is like the same feeling you get when, when you're on a Deutsche Bahn train and they say, I don't know, our train is delayed by 148 minutes. You know, why didn't you just say 150? Why didn't you round, round it? Uh, yeah, or I remember my, my, son, my son's kindergarten had uh, closed. It was a big culture shock when I moved here because uh, they said it closed at 1618, you know, not 15. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I'm sure there was some complex negotiation behind it going on between the different workers and the unions or whatever to just set it at 18 and not and not 20 and not 50. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, other than that. So yeah, we'll we'll be waiting. We'll be waiting for the trains to run on time, and we'll all be all be all very very old at the time. So yeah, no, it's something I've definitely learned. It's like even if you're having a kind of you think like I don't know, you're at the pub or something having a having some kind of political debate, and you just like you're talking to Germans, and you you sort of round the numbers or just like give the rough idea, and they'll like fixate on the like small difference, be like, no, you have to do it right, and I think your experience in Italy might be more similar to mine of like, no, 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 it's the, it's the general point I'm trying to make. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. have to be, I don't have to get the number exactly right. And like, while we're having a, a this casual chat, but it's like, nope, gotta be, yeah. gotta be precise. We, that train, I'm, ch- I'm, I'm setting my watch 2070. I expect the trains to be running on time. Uh, yeah. by, well, it's, it's, <laughs> by it, it's great that they haven't said 20, it could have been worse. They could have said 2071. Yeah. That's February, what I was, I was right? like February 2070. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get. I'm sure we'll get small updates there. So, yeah. Well, it's it's tough because all this, you know. Obviously, we're both more on the taking sustainable transport methods, but then it's like, come on, Germany, like make the make the trains a little better. Like criticize cars, all of this, but then the average person, it's like you do need to just create a sort of cost and convenience competitive system, and that is that is not quite where we are, fortunately. Um, so yeah, no, like I said, I know you have to have to go shortly, but so we can close out. But any uh, any closing thoughts on the the future of climate transport sustainability in Germany um, or anything that sort of the, the biggest developments you've seen over the past year? Yeah, I think like the news of the last few days was that uh, the, the new figures have come out for the emissions for the different sectors. And um, it, they show uh, and, and as you know, Germany has sectoral goals. And it shows um, um, that the gap between actual emissions and 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 where emissions should be uh, is is getting larger for uh, the transport sector. So that should, in theory, set in motion um, all, all, a whole series of reparatory measures on from the government, such as you know coming up with an emergency plan and so on. But it seems that. It, in practice, it, 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 these things are not happening. That you know, the people responsible for, for doing those emergency plans are really just defying the law in trying to not to come up with those measures or coming up with very wishy-washy measures that don't reduce emissions. So there is a big conflict there between the experts because there are some expert boards supposed to to you know keep the government in in check. Uh, and 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 the, what the politicians do. So I think we'll we'll hear more about it over over the next few months. I'm not very hopeful that in practice much will change, but there will definitely be some pretty public fights, uh, not just between between the politicians, but between the the, the experts and and politicians. It's another kind of weird German quirk of the combination of like rules on the surface but it's actually just a lot of discretion definitely like, you know oh here we're gonna have these like these binding targets and these expert panels and we need to cut it and we, we, we have to do this and then you run afoul of your own rules and it's like ah, well exactly what are you gonna do? it's like why did you make what's the point of the rules anyway you know yeah, yeah that's definitely that applied to transport and climate but but in yeah. a way it's it's good because it makes it very visible so it makes there, there's a lot of fighting about it because I, I think in other countries where they don't have sectoral goals and where they don't have those those mechanisms, 
uh, it's harder to see that the transport sector is really not delivering as much. But here it's more present in the public debate, at least. It's, it's more that there is more of an awareness uh, of that. So. Well, it's good. Good for your um, demands for your time, too. So hopefully, hopefully the, 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 listen, the, the German government will listen to Julio more in the future. <laughs> As, uh, as I'm sure we will in the future also on this podcast because we appreciate these these updates and your insights on this a lot. And so yeah, we will uh, we'll link to your Twitter account. Like I've said before, Julio is a great follow on Twitter for, for lots, of, uh, lots of updates. And if you don't have anything else, we can just say thanks so much, Julio Mattioli, transport researcher at the University of Dortmund. Thanks for coming on and I'm sure we will talk to you another time in the future. Thank you. Bye. Thanks so much. This is Ted. Welcome back. And thank you so much to Julio for the fascinating interview there. Since we recorded, not too much has changed, but we just want to make sure we give you the latest information in addition to the promised reading series. So it looks like that internal combustion engine debate or you know, roadblock, you might say, at the EU level is still ongoing. And now the FDP, which is, you know, like I said, still currently blocking the EU-wide phase out of internal combustion engines for cars, has instead proposed tackling road transport carbon. And their proposal to do so is actually increasing the price of petrol and diesel uh, via the mechanism of carbon pricing. Julio on Twitter always being the first to point these things out, uh, that there's a bit of irony about this. Because, of course, in our episode we did with him about exactly one year ago, it was the FTP leading the way to try to cut taxes on fuel for internal combustion engines because it was too unaffordable for the dear German drivers. And now their way to try to cut carbon is actually to raise the price, so to do the exact opposite of what they said they should do a year ago, potentially leading one to the conclusion that they just have no intention of phasing out fossil fuel cars at all and are simply trying to do whatever they can in the short term to stall that, uh, whether that's going up or down on gas prices, whether that's going uh, yes or no or no or yes on internal combustion engines, and so on. You know, I, I don't want to say, I don't wouldn't want to imply that it's just pure cynicism and they have no intention of fixing this problem, but there's a degree of inconsistency that could suggest that is what's going on. However, like I said, that was a little harsh on the FTP. Um, so we, we want to give a slightly different perspective on this, and maybe we're all being too tough on them. So to get that perspective, we're having an, it's a new character on the show, actually. It's one um, Nikolaus Bloma, uh, who's writing for Der Spiegel, the extremely prominent, prestigious um, German magazine. And he's got a he's got an opinion piece here. Mr. Nico here was um, he was previously deputy editor in chief and head of politics at Build, the the massive tabloid, the conservative tabloid. So not a not a great indicator um, that necessarily uh, we here at Spassbrems might share his politics. But let's hear him out. Let's hear him out. So what does he have to say? Headline: Despising the FDP is easy, but stupid. Subheader in mainstream society, it's been it's become all too common to laugh at or even hate the liberals. You can guess how that will turn out. Liberals, of course, meaning the 
is what the FTP is called, meaning economically liberal. If you're an American, think like libertarian. It's not the, not at all what the American term liberal means, which is like center left in the U.S. If a European says liberal, they mean economically right wing and libertarian. I think most listeners will know that already. But just to, just to clarify, so Nikolaus starts off recently in the comments on my columns here. I've been accused of only talking about the Greens and the left. That isn't true, but I've taken it to heart. Always a good start to a column when he's just being really self-referential and like like everyone is following your every word with bated breath. And it's like, man, I, I'm, you know, not everybody reading this will have read all your other columns, but it's good. It's good that you think you have such a dedicated readership that you're like, hey, guys, like you're talking to your friends. Oh, fine. I'll, I'll finally address the issue of the FDP. Anyway. So he says, so today I would like to do justice to the FDP and say the continued liberal bashing is laughable, downright uptight, and frivolously insubstantial. Just a quick note, this is just translated uh, through the, um, so, you know, the translation's usually pretty good. Um, it would be a little too annoying to read it all in German and then translate it, but it gives you an idea of what he's getting at. So he's using some nice, some nice language. You know, he's and he's coming out strong. It's uh it's rude and it's bad, and we shouldn't make fun of the FTP so much. He goes on. What is always applied in the schoolyard is also the case here. Everyone hits the little ones, and in German politics that is often the free democrats. If in the end they are thrown out of the Bundestag again, it will be because fiction and false framing have become stronger than the facts in a truly exemplary case of them prevailing. So basically, um, it's actually bullying to be rude and criticize one of the three parties in German government that have many of the most powerful ministries, including, of course, the finance ministry, um, the transport ministry, which is relevant to this episode. And so, okay, yeah, they're uh, one of the most powerful parties, and um, it's unfair and it's bullying if you criticize them for their actual policies. And then he says that doctoral theses will be written about the destruction of the FDP by hostile forces and the apathy that was shown about this in mainstream circles. He then rambles a bit about uh, this like kind of NGO organization that wanted to address senior poverty and he doesn't like how they framed it. It's kind of rambly, um, doesn't make that much sense. But he calls their sort of framing, which he thinks is a false way to frame old age poverty, um, he calls it a spectacular success of the welfare state lobby, the Dotsialstatslobby, welfare state lobby. In other words, like people that don't like being poor and like being provided for them um, because it's like living in a society kind of thing. But it's great when whenever you see someone label something as a lobby and it's just like people who want normal stuff you see this a lot um with like car pro car radicals they'll talk about like the bike lobby or just you can just throw lobby on any kind of just interest group of people that don't want to you know run out of money or get hit by cars or, or whatever but oh, the welfare state lobby lobby. nice turn of phrase um and then he just rambles a bit more about how actually uh we shouldn't care so much about people being poor in old age and he says this is a false framing that we're so concerned about it, effectively, just paraphrasing this. And then he says that 
this sort of false framing of old age poverty is actually the same thing that's happening to the FDP. They're being unfairly labeled. And he calls it the Noella Neumann spiral of silence, which is like a social scientific term where a political position will disappear slowly over time because people are afraid to say it and then it'll slowly kind of become extinct because it's so punished in mainstream society to say this this like great idea. Um, because, you know, he says, not because it's factually wrong, but because it's considered morally wrong by the majority and is therefore less and less advocated by the minority. And so the idea being like, these quite mainstream economic policies in, in Germany, like, unfortunately, they're very mainstream, like, you know, very low public debt and uh, pro-car policies and not transitioning away from fossil fuels very quickly. Like, these are not, uh, this is not a fringe position, unfortunately. It's pretty mainstream. And the FDP is advocating for this. They also get some of the biggest donations from like large donors ever. So this is a powerful party. Like I said, they're in government. They have a lot of important ministries. Um, but yeah, it's basically like there are these bold truth sayers uh, that are being just silenced by, I guess, the mainstream, even though, you know, I would rather be in government than be, quote, the mainstream, um, because the mainstream doesn't have a ton of power apparently, as we just learned from Julio and what's going on. And, and so uh, Nico continues, This is accompanied by a permanent ad hominem attribution of roles to the top FDP personnel. And he's saying this is how they're falsely construed. Christian Lindner is the aging Porsche yuppie. Volker Vissing is the overwhelmed idiot. Marco Buschmann is the nerd who knows better. Besser Visser in German. I think that's where that translation comes from here. Fortunately, hardly anyone knows the Minister of Education, but with the three gentlemen, it happens every day, dozens of times. Let's be honest. Uh, so, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't, obviously wouldn't want to insult any politicians um, on this podcast. But I would say, if you're criticizing a point of view and you're mocking an insult that you disagree with, you would definitely want to make that insult... Um, not something that is potentially true and not something that uh, many readers would probably agree with. For example, we did a episode on Christian Lindner calling him an aging Porsche yuppie. It kind of sounds like you just came up with a good insult for Christian Lindner, not that you're defending him from said insult. So, yeah, you're, uh, the rhetorical skills, a little shaky there, Mr. Bloma. And then he goes on, in this narrative, the FTP finance minister is currently the neoliberal killer of social policy because he thinks that other federal ministries should not simply declare 70 billion euros more in expenditure for the 2024 budget than is feasible. Um, you know, we've done a bunch of episodes about German economic policy, this obsession with with debt. Uh, we've, we've debunked that with Philippe Zigo-Glugna and many others. Go back and listen to that if you would like. But, you know, calling him, again, a neoliberal killer of social policy, it's like, Maybe make, if you're going to try to do a straw man, like make it just like make it significantly distinguishable from reality and not just being like, oh, yeah, actually, uh, he is um, an aging Porsche yuppie who's a neoliberal killer of social policy. Like Spiegel's readership is fairly center left. I think a lot of people would just read this and go, yeah, no, that that's right. That's right. Not, oh, my God, what an unfair criticism. You know, Nicolas Blom is so right. And he goes on to criticize how the Greens in the European Parliament have criticized them for this uh, blocking the, the phase out of um, internal combustion engines that we talk about. 
he the the green spokesman put them in the same category as the Italian fascists like Salvini and Maloney. Um, I mean, David Broder has a no, new book out about how these these uh, Italian politicians really are, in many ways, directly descended from Italian fascism. I'm not the best person to talk about that on here, but go buy David's book, absolutely. Anyway, it's a reasonable thing to say um, when they're using fascist imagery, and, you know, the FDP is backing the same policy as these people with the fascist lineage in their party. That is that is documented. That's not me being opinionated. I'm not saying they are actual, necessarily 100% fascists, but there's some ties there, and the FDP shares a policy with them. So, again, the thing you're saying is just kind of true? So, like, why are you giving just great fodder for your political opponents? You're just saying things that are like, yeah, that's actually a good line of criticism. It's kind of weird that the so-called liberals are uh, in agreement about the policy with the post-fascists, as David Broder calls them. And he goes on to conclude here. He says, The really disturbing thing, however, is how commonplace and accepted it has become in the mainstream and in the middle of society to laugh at, despise, or even hate the FDP. Last paragraph. Whenever a well-mannered bourgeois dinner party breaks up in mutual disagreement over corona, the war, or climate protection... A condescending remark about the FDP reliably smooths the waters and heals all wounds. I have no idea what kind of bourgeois dinner parties uh, Nico's going to here. Um, maybe his family doesn't like him or his friends don't. I don't know. Does anyone argue about Corona anymore? Or like, like what, what, what is this? And like who, a condescending remark about the FDP reliably smooths the waters and heals all wounds. Like, this seems like making up a situation to get mad at type thing. I would struggle to believe that Nikolaus Bloma has been at a dinner party and someone, A, it broke up over Corona, the war, or climate protection. And then someone was like, hey, hey, but I got a great Lindner joke. And then everyone was like, all right, all right, sits down, sits down. And they're like, okay, okay, all the wounds are healed. Okay. Um, and then he says, yeah, it, we have to, we have to, Call it out, the liberals are trapped in a self-fulfilling, silent, scolding spiral. Next stop, extinction. Wow, the FDP is going extinct. Again, probably some people listening to this, probably a good amount of people reading that column are like, Ooh, that wouldn't be too terrible. Um, nowhere does he actually cite anybody saying this stuff he's saying. He's just making up these narratives in his head that someone is saying, but... He doesn't even cite, like, like normally the lazy thing you can do if you want to, like, criticize the discourse is at least find, like, the two or three most unhinged op-eds and, you know, articles about this and say, look, everybody's saying this, and then argue with that. And then at least you have something to point to. He's simply just gesturing wildly at, like, uh, things he thinks people are saying and getting mad at them with no actual evidence that anyone's saying it aside from the one comparison of someone in the european parliament but that's hardly this you know middle of society everybody's saying kind of thing so i don't know if anyone's even saying this if they were they'd have some fair points of criticism as we've said but nikolaus bloma we want to hear your perspectives thank you uh, thank you for voicing this we should center liberal voices we should um we should not other uh, libertarians. We we can't let these bold truth tellers who want to continue driving and 
not spend very much money on the social welfare state. We cannot let them go extinct. Their views are valid. We should hear them. Thank you. And thank you, everybody, for listening. We will see you next time on the premium feed. Tschüss.